recognize that? Yeah. The wedding march, you recognize that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, thanks, Jeremy. That's good, Jeremy. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You're off the hook now. Everyone is doing everything they didn't plan on doing today. That was Paul's job. He's not here. It's Jeremy's job, all right? What happens when that music starts up? We all stand up. And why do we stand up? To see the bride. To see the bride. Here at Crossing, you know, this is how we set up church on Sunday mornings. And so that's a very short aisle. And no young woman with their daddy wants to walk down that short aisle. So if you've ever been here for a wedding on a Sunday morning, you know that we turn the whole church and everyone faces that way. And that provides the young woman to walk a really nice long aisle up to a platform up there where she meets her groom. And when that music starts, as you know, every head turns. Everyone stands up because they know that something special is happening. Because they know that that song tells us that the bride is approaching. And she'll walk down that aisle in beauty, amazing beauty, and she'll get to the front and her daddy will hand her off. And a young man will be up there panting, you know, happy to pass out. And he'll take her hand. And we'll go from there. I have often, you know, and Betty has told me many times, you know, I'll say, what am I, should I I wear this? And she goes, no one's looking at you when you do a wedding. (laughs) But she won't let me wear whatever I want to, so someone must be looking. (laughs) But I can tell you, I have gotten choked up more than once as I have watched a young man watch his bride come down the aisle. It's a very special, special moment. Open up your Bibles at John 14. We're going to read a passage there. John 14, chapter, uh, John 14 verse 1. We're going to start right there. And, and this is, you know, to set the context, this is the upper room discourse. And the Lord is there with his disciples. And this is the night of his betrayal. And the night before he goes into judgment, uh, before he goes before the courts, before he's tried and convicted. And he says this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Well, I've got to tell you, I, I cannot tell you how many times I've preached that for a funeral. It's pretty standard. But, you know, it's not talking about a funeral. It is talking about faithfulness of, of the Lord to his people, But it's not talking about a funeral. It's talking about the other big event, that's a wedding. And for us to kind of really um, understand that, we need to have a sense of what Jewish wedding customs and traditions of the time of Christ were like. 
And so for some of us, we might be very familiar with that. But for others of us, we might be pretty rusty about that. So this morning, let's refresh our memories and all get on the same page before we get to really what I want us to, to, to grasp out of this. Wedding customs at the time of Christ were kind of made up of three elements, three big elements. There are smaller things underneath each one of them. One was the contract. One was the betrothal, and the other one, the final one, was the consummation. And underneath that one is the celebration that everyone thinks about there. And in doing my research, I found that the basic facts about ancient Jewish wedding customs, that that those three things are intact in all of the research as you read different uh, authorities um, on this. But they all have a little bit of a different twist on them at times. And so as we go through this, I'll highlight some of the the twist on them, but we're going to, but and we'll see the differences between them a little bit. Uh, in regards to the contract, the first part of it, there are two different things that I read. One I read was that the young man would go to the bride's father and he would work out a price for the bride. But then another source said that it was, it was done between the parents completely. And at times it would be done between the parents at such a young age of the children that they would not even be aware of it. And it would be, set in, it would be something that would be set in place for years forward. So I heard both stories on that. But either way, the, what remains, regardless of who's negotiating that price, it remains that the, a marriage was built on a contract in this regard, where a young woman, in a sense, a young man or a young man's family came and paid a price for that young woman. And when that price was agreed upon, it wasn't paid at that moment, but it was agreed upon. And there was a small, I read that sometimes it was simply a, a, a sharing of a cup of wine, but something was done where there was a contract that was agreed upon between these two parties. And at the moment of that agreement, the couple is considered married. That's as good as an I do right there. They were married. And while they were not living together, and while there was no ceremony, and when there was no sexual consummation or anything of that nature, they were considered as good as married. Now, you think about that in the nativity story. You understand now, if you think about that, that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. And when she showed up a little ripe, all of a sudden, you understand the issues that were at play. She was married to Joseph, and she shows up with child. You understand now. Here she is. The natural assumption is is that she has been unfaithful. And that was the decision that we read about that Joseph was working through. What do I do? And and so as you understand this legally binding agreement between the, the families here, that that is why that was such a problem for Mary and Joseph. Now, after they'd been betrothed, and you know, at, at the point of signing that contract, they were betrothed. That was considered betrothed. Um, it's a concept, it just, in other words, it means a promise, in a sense, between these two families about this young couple. The woman stayed with her father, while the young man returned to his father's house, where he would prepare a room, a place, a home for them to live in. So you see John 14 coming into play here. Here was a young man. He is promised to this young woman. They are essentially married. They're united legally. Now he goes away to his father's home where there are many mansions, and he prepares a place for you, he says, 
and I'll come back for you and take you with me there. So now we understand John 14, the context of Jewish marriage a little bit, don't we? They would, be, they would remain betrothed for approximately one year, and somewhere in the context of that one-year anniversary, not knowing the exact day, but knowing that it's about this time, the young man would come back for her. So the young woman would not know what day he was coming, but she might know it might be this month, it might be next week, it might be sometime in this context, but she did not know when it would be exactly. It was not hers to know. Does that remind anyone else of anything? You, it is not for you to know the date and time. You know, you remember the Lord saying that? So at the end of the year, the husband would come and take his wife. It occurred at night, and he would have attendants, and she would have her attendants as well. It could be as many as ten for each one of them. And one of the young man's attendants would go ahead of the wedding party to the young woman's house, and he would announce there something along the line of, like, the bridegroom, the bridegroom is coming. And with that announcement, she would begin to gather her, her lady attendants and be prepared for the moment when the husband would arrive. And they would all go in a procession back to the groom's new home that he had prepared for he and his wife. And prepare yourself. And then, with all 20 or so of them standing outside the door, they would go inside and have their first sex and consummate the relationship. Now, there's no pressure there at all, is there? It gets worse. Because the entire wedding tradition, in in a sense, the whole process depended on the purity of the bride, on her virginity. If she did not bleed after first sex, she was not considered a virgin. Most sources explain that after consummation, the, broom, the groom would announce, hey, guess what we just did, right? And the celebration would begin. But or the sources went so far as to say that he would provide the bloodied bedsheet, therefore demonstrating that his wife was a virgin and they had consummated. Deuteronomy 22 even says so much. In Deuteronomy 22, it says that if a man takes a wife and then decides he doesn't like her anymore, that the father of the bride can come forth and say, my do- and because he would come forth and say, she's not a virgin. I don't have to keep her. I don't like her. And at that time, in Deuteronomy 22, 7, the father could come forth and say, but here is the proof of my daughter's virginity. Then he must spread out her bread sheet before the elders. There's a really awkward silence in here, isn't there? <laughs> okay. And and following this announcement, the wedding feast would begin. Now, that little detail is important in a few moments. Let me explain it to you. Now, really briefly, without going back into the consummation stuff very much, um, let's touch on other aspects of the wedding customs. So you can see how the Lord used these customs to teach spiritual principles. In John 3.29, here is John the Baptist saying, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom who stands near him listens and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice, and therefore his joy, his joy, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. So here's John the Baptist, and he's, and he's depicting himself as the friend of the groom who is standing outside the door waiting on that evidence of the, the consummation of the marriage. And here he says, this man, this guy, he's the guy. And I am here celebrating as his witness. 
Also, when you look into Matthew 25, here's another time where Christ is teaching, taking this picture, this custom, and he's teaching from it. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took the lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. There you go. You remember that story? Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Now you have a context for how the Jewish wedding custom was Jesus was using it to teach us. Matthew 22, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and he sent out slaves to call in all those who were invited to it. Again, he's referring to weddings. And then not only that, but the very first miracle in John 3, 16, I believe. No, that wouldn't be right. In John, somewhere early in John, you know, um, he goes to the wedding feast of Cana and that's where his mom says, hey, they're out of wine. Can you do this? right? Why are we talking about weddings? Because last week I told you we were talking about the church. How do weddings and brides and grooms and betrothals and celebrations have anything to do with the church? Well, Paul says this in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So here he is. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved Love the church, for he is a groom and the church is a bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he may present to the church himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. So that he may present the church without spot or wrinkle. Here, Paul's making this comparison between marriage of man and woman and that of the church and Christ. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 11, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband. What did we say betrothal was? He's speaking to the church, and he says, I feel this jealousy about you because I betrothed you. You are like a woman who's betrothed to a man. You're not with that man right now. You are separated from him, but you are married to him. You are bound to him, he says. So he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And then in Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exult with and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Here again, he's speaking again in these pictures of marriage. So as here's Jesus John 14, he's speaking in terms of a wedding, and he's telling his best friends that he's about to go away, and he's going to prepare a place for them, and he'll come back for them and take them there. They all get it. Whether they're married or not, they all get it because it's the standard custom. All of us knew what that music was up there, not because we've all walked down the aisle, but because we know what it means. And so every man, every person that might have been in that upper room with the Lord that night, they knew what he was talking about. They knew that he was referencing wedding, and they knew that this custom was one that they understood. They understood that a young woman was betrothed to a young man, and that young man would always come back for her. And so here he says, he's saying, I am like the groom, and you are like the bride, and I am going to leave you, but I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back for you. 
And that church, which is the bride, it had, been, it had a contract worked out on it. It had a price paid for it, didn't it? The price was the very blood of Christ. That's how he purchased her. Because the church is not a building. It's not a cathedral. It's not a barn like this place is. It's not, um, uh, it's not a, a hut in the jungle. It's not a house in the suburbs. That's not what a church is at all. This is, this is a place that we meet, that we in our, in, our, in our customs and in our traditions have decided this is how we do church. But church is not about a place. Church is about you and you and you and you and us. Church is the people, a people who are called out. A people who are called out and who realized that they needed a Savior and saw that Jesus is that Savior. A people who have come to understand that they could not pay the penalty for their own sin and that they needed someone to do it for them. A people who understand that Jesus is that someone and that, as I so often say, he was wrongly accused, wrongly tried, wrongly convicted, mocked, beaten, and whipped. He was nailed to a cross where he died. And on three days later, he came back to life, thereby defeating death so no man, woman, or child would have to fear death ever again. So anyone in this room who's ever placed their faith in Christ and understood their need for a Savior and said, I need Jesus, I want to take his penalty as my penalty. If you have ever done that, you are a part of the bride of Christ. You have been bought with a price, and your groom has gone off to prepare a place for you. One author made this observation about the love of the groom, about the love of Jesus for his bride. He says, the extent of his love, the love of Christ for his bride, is far surpasses anything known to humans. Even though it has been set forth as the ideal marriage, never has a man loved his wife as Christ loved the church. For Christ did not love those worthy of love, but sinners and enemies. Now, did you catch that? And that's kind of an interesting fact. No man has ever walked down the street and found the most unappealing woman he could ever think of, one who hated his guts, one who kicked and screamed when he walked by, spat on him, called him names, and said, she's perfect for me. No man has ever found a woman like that and said, that's exactly what I'm looking for in a woman. I'll, I'll, I'll go off and build her a house. I'll give, every, I'll give up everything to bring her home and make her my bride, and I'll be proud of it. No man has ever said that. But the Lord said that about each one of you. I know that they don't want to yield to my authority. I know that they don't want to do things my way. I know all that, and I still want them. And that is who your groom is. And that is how he loved you. If you go back to the book of Hosea, great, great book. You need to go and read it. And if you go and read it, you might not understand everything, but there's a few things you cannot escape. Here is a man who had a wife who was a whore, and he married her. And she chose to go back to sleeping around. The story goes that he eventually finds her beaten up, worn out, 
haggard-looking thing being sold off. And he says, I'll buy her. I'll buy her. She's mine. I'll take her home with me. And it is in that story of this man buying back his, his, his unfaithful bride that God demonstrates his love for his people. And in that case, he's demonstrating his love for Israel. But that is nothing different than the way Christ loves you and I. And so the question then kind of remains, okay, that's great, Tim. I really like all that. That's good imagery. I can understand some of the parables now. Thank you very much. What does that have to do? What am I supposed to do with that? Because I'm supposed to wait. Well, the only thing that that young woman had to do while she was waiting was be faithful. That's the only thing she had to do. When he came and he agreed on a price with the father, she was married to him. Her job from that day forward to whenever it was that he came back for her was to be, to be faithful to her absent husband. That is what we are called to as well. That's what we are called to. We are a bride who have been purchased with the price, the supreme price, the blood of an innocent son of God. And so what we've been called to is to be faithful to our groom until he returns. What does faithfulness look like when we wait on Jesus? Well, it would look like it would be for any other young Hebrew woman who was betrothed in marriage to a young man. She would forsake all others. I'm, I'm sure that it's not uncommon, I guess, I'm not sure, but I, I would think that it's not uncommon for a young man to see a young woman and think, hey, what about her? And to come alongside and say, and her answer is always to say, no, no, I'm promised, I'm married. In our lives, every single day of our lives, we are barraged with suitors, with cheaters, who would come after us and say, hey, come on, come with me. I can promise you goodness. I'll make it fun. I guarantee I'll make it fun. And you know what the problem with that is? It nearly always is fun. It always is fun. That's my problem with sin. I like it a lot. But we all do. We all do. And so here we are as considered as a young bride who every day has another young man come by our door and say, come on, I'm making fun. You ever been to Jerusalem? It's really great. Lots of bright lights. I'll take you there. Come on. And we're left as supposed to say no. But every day we say Okay, okay, that sounds fun. We're called to be faithful. We're called to reject all suitors. We're called to say no to anyone who would come in and say, I, I can be your husband. I can make it fun for you. 
this would be something you'll like. And every day we're called to say no to that. And yet every day we struggle with saying no to that. We are to, to forsake all other lovers, all other gods, anything that would give glory and honor, anything that would take satisfaction away from, from that would, anything that would give us satisfaction that did not come from God, anything that would give us value that did not come from Jesus, anything that would consume our lives and leave our other, our true lover behind, anything that would remove Jesus off the throne of our heart and replace him with someone else or something else, whatever that may be, that is being like the, like the horror of Hosea, unfaithful. Unfaithful. And so we read the story of Hosea and think, what a winch. What a horrible, horrible woman. That guy was crazy. I would never take a woman who slept with that many other men. And yet we are, Hose- we are Gomer. We are that woman. And we've slept with all those men and a few others. And the Lord comes back and says, that one's mine. I died for her, I gave my life up for her, and she's mine. And I'm preparing a place for her, and I'll come back for her one day. That is the nature of the church. That is the nature of Jesus in his character, in the richness of his character. That in all of our unfaithfulness, Sometimes our unfaithfulness is just very blatant. It is, I will do what I want to do no matter what, and you can't stop me. And other times, our sin is sin we were trying to, like, peel away from us, and we continue to fall back into it, and we pull ourselves out. And day by day, as we make that struggle, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, and in the compassionate love the chesed love of God where he is committed to us and he will not ever walk away from us as we continue to try and be different every day and yield ourselves to him more and more and more and more every day and yet we still fail every day somewhat, he still says, she's mine and I love her and I'll take her with me. That is a great, great lover. That is a great lover groom. And that is who we serve. That's who the church serves. That is the relationship of the church to Jesus. That is your relationship to him. That is my relationship to him. Faithfulness ought to look, ought to be living fully in the power of the Holy Spirit, are learning how to do it day in and day out because we are all struggling in some way or another. We are the bride of Christ. We should be like the young woman who who captures the attention. Think about this. Think about this. Imagine this with me, all right? Imagine that, that this is the world out there. This is Bucks County out there. And that there is a young bride walking down the aisle. And when that young bride walks down the aisle, everyone stands and looks because there is something special happening there. That is who we are to be in our communities. And in our communities, as we walk and as we live and as we claim the name of Jesus, we should be, in essence, walking down the aisle of our communities in such a way that they all look and go, that is beautiful. I've 
I've just not seen one as beautiful as her. They say that about Everbride. You know that, don't you? I'm sorry. I've never seen one as beautiful as her. As they walk down that aisle. That is what we're called to. Is that we should represent him. And we should love him. And we should look like him. And we should be living like him. In such a way that we represent him. And we point to him all the time. So as we walk through the aisle of our town. And our community. And our office complex. And our, our neighborhoods. As we come into that space. It should be something that like. There is a difference about us. In such a way that we are wearing a veil. We are dressed in regalia. But it's not our regalia. It is the holiness and the righteousness and the beauty of Jesus that we wear as we go into our communities. And we step into that space and the community kind of stands and they look and they say, there is something beautiful about her, about that church about that person. And that beauty is Jesus. That beauty is him. You see, because this is the thing. We still sin every day. We still, you know, let this, you know, I'm not going to do the wallet thing, okay? But let this represent sin in a sense. And this is who we are. And day in and day out, we are still struggling with our sin and our, our selfishness, our anger, our gossiping, whatever it may be. We still struggle with that every single day. But it says that the righteousness of Christ, the blood of Christ covers that sin. And in essence, it's almost like it covers us. And the righteousness of sin covers that sin. So as we go forward, we should be going forward not in the fullness of our sin, but in the fullness of his righteousness that covers that sin on our behalf. And we go in like that. We don't go in with all the answers. We don't go in saying, I know everything. We go in saying, I love him and he knows everything. I serve him and he's got it all down. So see, we are the bride of Christ and we represent him. Our lives, our words, our actions should reveal him. And so I'm going to go back to a theme Going back to comments I said last week. So how we love each other in this room. How we confront each other in love and compassion in this room. How we resolve conflict. How we overlook sin. How we sacrifice for others. How we forgive others in this room speaks volumes to everyone else outside this room. Because we love each other the way he loved us. All that and so much more draws attention of the world on the bride of Christ and points back to him. Church, let's live as that bride. And let's not let anything less than that be said about us. Let's pray.